The reading of the scriptures from Psalm 75, invite your reverence, uh, hearing in faith, uh, and the inspired words that we uh, have uh, in Psalm 75 uh, through uh, Asaph. Uh, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high, or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. We often uh, celebrate uh, various achievements in life with awards, status, wealth, uh, perhaps a medal, some form of uh, remembrance because of some great activity, whatever it might be. And of course, there is nothing at all wrong with uh, celebrating uh, the achievements of, uh, of mankind unless God is not seen as the ultimate cause and receives the glory. Then, Everything is wrong. And God will humble the recipient and take it all away. And even more so, uh, wreck eternal destruction. In, in our psalm this morning, God is praised for His sovereignty and judgment, and the arrogant or the proud or the boastful are warned, for it is God who exalts or tears down both in time and eternity. Uh, if we were to classify this psalm, I would simply call it a psalm of descriptive praise by an individual, uh, in this case, uh, Asaph. Uh, the, the psalm logically is uh, broken in, up into several constituent parts. We begin in verse 1 with a declaration of praise followed in verses 2 and 3 by reasons for praise, and then in verses 4 to 5, a solemn warning, again followed by reasons in verses 6 to 8, and then uh, Asaph concludes with a vow to praise, verses 9 to 10. So Asaph is leading the congregation in praise, in public acclaim uh, for God's attributes and His works. Uh, the reason uh, he gives for this uh, declaration of praise is that uh, the name of God is near. Uh, 
Uh, the name in the Old Testament speaks to divine reputation. Uh, and here, uh, the divine nearness. Uh, you and I have the greatest of all hopes in the nearness of God in the incarnation. Uh, the Word of God uh, became flesh and tabernacled among us. Uh, the great promise of our Savior, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So we, we should praise God uh, because uh, Christ is near to us. Now, oftentimes uh, in life, because of its exigencies, we, we feel He is far away. He has taken the receiver off of the hook. But these are, these are simple delusions. The emphatic declaration of the truth of the Scriptures is that Christ is near to us in all events. And so we should... We should praise Him continually. Correspondingly, the righteous declare the wondrous works of God. Uh, the context of uh, the righteous works of God are in this text. His sovereignty and judgment. His sovereignty and judgment. It's a terrifying thought. Uh, but we, uh, we praise Him uh, because He judged His Son as our substitute. A wrath was poured out upon Him instead of us. What a great reason to praise Him all of the time, every day, uh, because of His wondrous works. Uh, it's interesting that when you look at the verbal aspects of the summons to praise, is that uh, they, they imply repeated action, uh, continuity, uh, praising God irrespective of the time and events. Uh, and that's really the essence of worship. Uh, our response to who God is and what He does, His sovereignty and judgment. Well, the reasons to praise uh, verses 2 to 3 follow. Uh, it's very important when you look at the text, uh, there's a shift in subject matter. Uh, in verse 1, uh, we have the first person plural, but in verse 2, we have the first person singular. It, it's God, God is speaking to us now. Uh, he's telling us of reasons that we should pray him, praise Him. Asaph has summoned the congregation, and now God speaks to the congregation and gives us reasons that we should uh, praise Him continually. Uh, so again, pay, pay close attention to uh, the first person singular. Uh, I believe it is God that is speaking, telling us why we should uh, praise Him. And again, we praise Him because He's sovereign in judgment. Uh, first, He tells us, uh, I select the appointed time. In the Hebrew Bible, it's literally, I take. Uh, God takes uh, and, and sets in motion the appointed time of, uh, of the totality of uh, judgment. It is His choice. It is His initiative. Uh, the object here of the appointed time, in my own mind, is the end time final judgment. That God has appointed that time. It is set and nothing can change it. It's really a terrifying thought to those who are outside of Christ. But for all who are in Christ, it's uh, comforting uh, because we will not face it. We will not confront it because it has been poured out uh, upon the righteous uh, Son of God. I mean, what, a, what a reason to praise Him continually. Uh, reference to this, if you will, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 19. Uh, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. What a terrifying thought. 
God has appointed that time. Nothing can change it. And God will bring all things under judgment. Now, if you're not a Christian, it's a reminder that you will stand before God when that appointed time comes. Uh, we don't know when it is, but nonetheless, He has said it. It is uh, certain. And beyond the time, there's the promise that He will judge in equity. The Hebrew Bible is literally straightness. Now, God has one standard. We're all on level ground. Uh, you may be someone who has been the object of a great acclaim in our culture. We're happy for you. Uh, perhaps uh, you have won awards and been given positions and rank and stature and all of these things uh, do great perhaps in our, our culture and in our civic life. But before God, you stand on level ground. He takes no account whatsoever for your rank and position. They mean, they mean nothing to Him. Nothing at all to Him. Uh, he judges essentially in Jesus Christ. And uh, all stand on that similar ground. You're either in Him or outside of Him. And He will judge, of course, in the totality of equity. Single standard. A single standard that all will confront. Christ. Uh, it should, uh, should humble us because of the sovereignty of God in judgment. Because it's Christ and not your status, not your rank, not your position. Uh, always uh, uh, tickle the words of a very wealthy man who, who was asked about eternity and he said, well, I gave $30 billion that ought to count for something. My friend, it counts for nothing before God. Nothing. The second reason uh, that we should uh, praise God is, uh, is that regardless of temporal events, God sets the pillars uh, upon which He has created the universe. This refers in my mind to the irrevocable and immutable standards by which God governs. Uh, for example, we might look at a very parallel verse, uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Uh, in other words, one of the pillars of which God will judge is wisdom. Uh, Christ is wisdom personified in the book of the Proverbs. He is personified as a, as a lady, as a beautiful woman walking in the streets, calling the young men to turn to, turn to her, to embrace her, to reject the wicked way. Upon that standard of Christ, uh, God, God will affect the eternal judgments. The standards, again, are His. We sometimes uh, conjure up in the humanity of our own theology that, well, God has His ways, and I have my ways, and my ways are as good as anybody else's, and uh, I, I think He'll take my good works, whatever they might be. Uh, it will not work that way. God sets the standards and not you or humanity or any human court or any human government. It's entirely of God. And contextually, uh, uh, the standard in our text this morning is that uh, humility is blessed. 
and the proud are destroyed. There's something of this uh, as a pillar of, uh, of uh, all of civilization by which God will govern in the final two verses of Ecclesiastes. The conclusion when all has been heard is simply this. Fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And so for the Christian, we flee to Jesus Christ, which is eternal protection. If you're not a Christian, that is the only haven of eternal safety. And even the fear of God comes from His great work of regeneration. Uh, but we do tremble that He will bring all things under judgment. And so as Christians, we pray continually that by His good and gracious Spirit, uh, we would manifest His sanctifying work because He will bring all things to judgment. That we live in a moral universe and God will bring all things under that realm of His terrifying sovereign judgment. By sovereign, I mean He knows everything. Nothing escapes His gaze. He forgets nothing. We do nothing that He does not know. We think Nothing that he does not know. It's terrifying, but that is the basis for the end time judgments and uh, the moral imperatives to seek his favor in Jesus Christ. And it's inevitable and certain because he is sovereign. And so from public declaration to praise, God gives us some reasons, uh, and then God issues a warning in light of his sovereignty. Because He is sovereign, He's going to warn us about the end time judgments in verses 4 and 5. Uh, the boastful or the arrogant and the wicked should not boast in their power or speak in their pride. Uh, these are uh, imperatives of prohibition. Let's look at them. I said to the boastful, again, God is speaking. He's speaking to the man who says, I've done a lot of good works in life. And God will be impressed. I've attained great stature and status. I belong to several halls of fame. And uh, God will take all of these things into account. Notice what God says to that person. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent Pride. Uh, the verb uh, lift up, uh, I don't know if you caught it or not, the simple reading of the text is used five times in this psalm. It speaks to height, of course. You lift something up high, but it's a reference here to status, rank, power, and achievements. It conveys pride, of course, but more importantly, self-acclaim, self exaltation. If you will, to use a sports metaphor, you're keeping your own scorecard. And God looks at none of that. The direct object of the lifting up is the horn. It's a symbol of power and strength. We have a saying in our culture, do we not? Be very careful about tooting your own horn. It's exactly what this psalm is telling us. Don't lift up your own horn. Be very careful. 
because God is not impressed at all with your horn, regardless of what you play upon it. It means nothing to him. The final prohibition is to not speak from arrogant pride. Uh, the word arrogant pride is literally in the Hebrew Bible, a stiff neck. The implied substitution is to resistance or rejection of God's sovereignty. There's a, there's a conceptual allusion uh, to this that really frames the stiff neck or the arrogance in terms of, of idolatry. It's a very profound illusion uh, that comes uh, from Exodus uh, chapter 32 and Exodus chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people, but it's literally, they are stiff-necked. Exodus 33.3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you're an obstinate people. Again, literally stiff-necked. So how did they get stiff-necked? Well, they worshipped a golden calf that had a stiff neck. And in the progress of worshipping the golden calf with a stiff neck, they have become exactly like the God that they worship. And it speaks to their obstinacy of heart uh, as opposed to humility before a terrifyingly sovereign God. It occurs again in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. That's even more telling because their heart has become hardened. Hardened because they have worshipped idols of stone. And so their hearts have become like stone. And God has not cut their flesh so that they are dead spiritually in their obstinacy and in their pride. It's a terrifying prohibition uh, of the effects of, of idolatry that is uh, transformative of our souls. We don't think in those terms today. Well, you can worship anything you want to, many roads to heaven, certainly not according to the scriptures, but idolatry is a transformative act. And uh, the children of Israel in Exodus 33, Acts chapter 7, uh, have been made like the God that they worship with stone hearts that cannot believe. Uh, so it's a, it's a refusal to submit to God's sovereign order that uh, sets in motion a transformation into the hardness of a lifeless idol. really points out the uh, majesty of God's mercy because it means only He can change the dead heart. Uh, when you look at the great promises of Ezekiel, I'll take away your heart of stone and give to you a heart of flesh. That's, if you're a Christian, that's how you became a Christian. You had a dead heart full of stone. You were full of idols and he came and he took away your dead heart and gave you a heart uh, that enabled you by his sovereign power to believe and to hope in him and to reject the idols that you held fast in your heart. He did it over and over those great texts of Ezekiel, I, I will do this, I will do this, and I will put my spirit within you. Totally an act of God. Meaning, he gets 
all the glory. And we should be profoundly humbled because of who we were and what he did for us. It's entirely a divine prerogative. So God is sanctioning pride. Uh, he's warning us against self-exaltation, about walking down, if you will, lover's lane, holding your own hand, thinking that you are so special. Because before God you are not. Only he is special. It's a reminder that pride as well as a moral event, a transformational event of idolatry. And God will destroy the idolater. As I mentioned earlier, there are reasons for the warnings in verses 6 to 8. Again, God is a warning to the proud, the arrogant. Uh, because they're boasting in their works rather than the work of God. Look at the reasons uh, for the warning in verses 6 to 8. Verse 6 uh, begins as, as an emphatic disclaimer. Exaltation or glory does not come from east or from the west or from the desert. doesn't come from those places. One status or position does not come from any geographic region whatsoever. It's really, I think, a figure of speech, uh, technically a, a part for the whole. He gives us a part, but he means everywhere and anywhere. It comes from no place on this created earth. I'm not so sure it's not a double figure of speech in which uh, uh, Psalmist Asaph gives us uh, the subject, but he really means everything included in the subject. In other words, the entire created order, but that includes all the inhabitants of the created order. Exaltations comes from nowhere and from nothing that is human. I was reading the uh, obituary this morning, occasionally do, and the gentleman that uh, graduate of Yale Law School. Now, my friend, that's a pretty impressive title. We can accord him great respect. We would, we would say rest in peace. God is not impressed. The greatest lawyer of all time is Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for someone who can say, I'm from Harvard Law. Christ does not get out his handkerchief and dab his eyes. It means nothing before God's sovereign judgment. I don't mean to belittle it. I only mean that we enter into a different realm. I'm thankful for civil law. I'm thankful for the justice that we have from our civil courts but they pale in utter insignificance before the court of heaven. And there and there only, there is but one defense attorney who matters at all, and that is Jesus Christ. We might say of someone that they're the president of a Fortune 500 company. How did they get there? Well, by being pretty dead gum smart, to be sure. But it doesn't turn God's head. 
These may be indications of achievement and status, but they mean nothing to God. And in eternity, they bestow nothing. Beautiful illustration of this is they're not in terms of the very framing of the gospel. It's not because of the will of man. John chapter 1 and verse 13. It's not because of the status of birthright of his family. Nor the will of the flesh. So where does regeneration come from? comes from God, but of God. One of the reasons that we as Christians ought to be more humble than all is that we know from the theology of the New Testament that God alone saved us. Nothing within us intrinsically or extrinsically could have saved us. Only God. And therefore, of all men, we are most humble. That's taught to us inherently in Psalm 75. And because he did it, he gets the glory. All of the glory. Because he did it all. I understand in our culture, particularly our church culture, there's grand themes like we cooperate with God. He does his part and I do, our, I do my part. And uh, we both uh, work together and as a committee, God on the committee and I'm on the committee and we work out a deal and we, we mutually come to a, a cooperative salvation. That's all well and good. You'll search the New Testament. Never. You will never find that. I don't have a clue as to how it's got so popular in the American church today. I'll simply take John 1.13 and 14. But of God. And therefore... We cannot bask in any glory at all. He gets it all. It's a beautiful picture of this uh, uh, in uh, 1 Samuel, if you turn uh, your Old Testaments. I'm not so sure that Asaph is not alluding uh, to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1. Uh, begins uh, in a very sad way. Uh, man had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah. And uh, Hannah has not been able to conceive a child. And uh, she's saddened. And she goes up to the temple all the time to pray. God would look with her on favor. Uh, but you read in chapter 1 and verse 5 that the Lord had closed her womb. I understand that for many, perhaps uh, I'm speaking someone even in this congregation, that can be a very bitter thing. I profoundly understand that. Uh, but I also know something else, that God is sovereign. He opens and He closes. He has the key. Ultimately, all of life comes from him. In the case of Hannah, he has closed her womb. And then she goes up to the temple to pray in her great bitterness, pouring out her heart before God. Uh, so much so that uh, uh, the high priest thinks she's drunk, but she has to correct him. 
He understands. She's praying out of bitterness. And she's praying because she knows above all things that God is the ultimate cause so that her prayers uh, are turning in utter dependence upon God. Uh, And then we read in verse 19, Elkanah had relations with Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her, and she gives birth to a son. The sovereignty of God in life. She is incredibly humbled. Gives no really record of how many years. I simply presume it was a long time, not unlike Sarah. Uh, the wife of Abraham. Uh, but nonetheless, God closed and God opened. It's a reference to the majesty of the sovereignty of God. It's a picture of a woman who's brokenhearted, but who depends upon her Lord, who can create life out of death. And she gives birth to a son. And let's look at her for praise in chapter 2 and verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. That word horn is used in Psalm 75. Look at, uh, look at the expansion of the praise in verses 3 to 8. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is God of knowledge. And with Him, actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full of hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills, and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to Sheol when He raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And He set the world upon them. The majesty, ladies and gentlemen, of the absoluteness of the sovereignty of God. It's purity. In Hannah's heart, a measure of bitterness, and then exultant joy. Because God enacts when no one else can. A reminder to us to be humble. And when God lifts you up, to give Him all the praise and the honor and the glory. Because He deserves it all. It's exactly what Hannah is teaching us. But it's everywhere in Scripture, is it not? Uh, one of my favorite verses, Isaiah 44, 24, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the One who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by Myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Wonderful act of creation, God alone. It's one of the terrifying aspects of our culture uh, that is uh, uh, really... Uh, sadly, the case may be hell-bent on teaching us uh, the theology of evolution. 
that God wasn't there, that God didn't make it happen. Or if he did, he fell asleep and put time and chance in motion. No, my friend, God gets all the glory. Notice he even forms us in the womb. God, the sovereign creator. The aspect of the sovereignty of God that should cause us to be humble and to exalt and praise him as Hannah learned in the bearing of son. Second reason, uh, returning to Psalm 75, of, of uh, the reasons that we should be rightly warned. Uh, verse 7, that God is the judge. Literally, God is the one judging the present participle, speaking to the continuity of judgment. Uh, he puts down one and exalts the other. It's exactly what Hannah said. But the Hebrew Bible, it's really, it's really much more... Uh, uh, profound in that. It's literally as such, uh, this one puts down one and this one puts down the other as a reference to God. That his actions are preeminent and solitary. This one, this God, and only this God is the creator. He creates life and death. He has the keys to heaven and hell. The sovereign, majestic Jesus Christ. This is the one you must reckon with. You can have all the medals of the greatest of generals, all the accolades of, of a civic life and culture, uh, but, but it is Christ with whom you must deal and reckon. He has the key. Uh, the definiteness of the subject of the two verbs is breathtaking. More importantly, these are perpetual, repeated actions. He's continually exalting one and bringing down the other. God is able to reverse either position. That's why as Christians, we are continually humbled by the sovereignty of God. Because then in a moment, we might be humbled. And in a moment, humbled, we might be lifted up. Continually riveted upon God because of who He is and what He does. And every cause may have a role, but the ultimate cause is exclusively his. That ultimately our position status in life is by divine decree, including ends and means. It comes from him. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling the church at Corinth. They become arrogant and proud in their salvation. And Paul says, ladies and gentlemen, consider your call. Were there many wise among you? When you consider the efficacious call of God, it's his power that makes us alive, not our human wisdom, much less status or rank or privilege. 1 Corinthians chapter Chapter 1, verse 31, therefore, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. The essence of Psalm 75. He gets all the glory because of his power and his sovereignty. If you've escaped judgment because of Jesus Christ, your personal, solitary faith in him and him alone, he gets all the glory. doesn't take kindly to sharing it because he's done all the work. The immensity of the judgment and satisfaction upon the cross, terrifying judgment. 
Who else would you praise but him? Rightfully so. First uh, Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. What do you have? Paul tells the Corinthian church. What do you have that you didn't get from God? Reminding them that they should be humble. It means that we should acknowledge him in loss and in gain. I, I, I understand it's very hard to do. I understand we all go through seasons in life in which seemingly nothing goes right. Seemingly everyone says no. Seemingly the receiver is perpetually off of the hook. I simply remind you, God is sovereign. He loves his sons and daughters. This one brings down and this one lifts up. Let me translate this in a different way. We are to engage in all of the means of hard work and preparation. If you can, leave nothing on the table. Do all that you can. But the promotion or lack thereof comes from Him. Give Him the glory. In loss, we can wait. In loss, we can take the long view because God is sovereign. We can take the long view because our God is a sovereign God. The third reason, verse 8, to wave off any pride and arrogance is the end time judgment. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink it down to the dregs. The arrogant are those who refuse to acknowledge divine sovereignty will get judgment. And they'll drink it. They'll drink it all. The cup is a metaphor of many things in the Bible, sometimes blessing, sometimes salvation, but here it's an end-time final judgment of which there is no recovery. It too, it too, notice the text, verse 8, it's in the hand of the Lord. You know, I read the newspaper and I read about these guys that are have all types of indictments and they're in prison and my friend, that's the only beginning of their woes. If they're guilty, I understand. Things must happen. But if they're guilty, that's only the beginning. In the end time, a man outside of Jesus Christ will face God. In the hand of God, there's a cup of judgment. And they will drink that cup down to its most bitter dregs. Undiluted, in fact, intensified. Prophet Jeremiah Chapter 25 alludes to the psalm, well, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take this cup, the wine of the wrath from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink it and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I send among them. Terrifying aspect of the sovereignty of God in judgment. People going absolutely mad having, having to drink from that cup. And the proud must uh, drink it to the bitter dregs. The Apostle John alludes to Psalm 75 in Revelation 14.10. All who worship the beast will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which he mixed in full strength, the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. The end time judgment. 
all of the proud and the arrogant who have said to God that they do not need his son will drink that cup. But uh, it's also a curse in time. Again, I referenced earlier that uh, judging is a present participle. God continually affects judgment. Sovereignty of his judgment. A beautiful picture of this in uh, Acts chapter 12. Uh, Herod gets up to give a speech. He puts on his royal apparel. He takes a seat in the rostrum and begins delivering an address. And the people are crying out to him, this is the voice of a God and not a man. And the text then reads, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and he died. One of the lowest life forms, the worm, conquers the great Roman governor Herod because he did not give God the glory. Reminder to the proud and the arrogant to be very careful, to repent and to flee to Christ. Reminder to all of us to be incredibly humble because of what God has done to us in giving us life and in sending us his son to drink the cup of judgment. Isn't that the reality of, of the great prayer in Gethsemane? Lord, take this, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And he drinks the cup so that we never have to drink the cup of judgment. Never. Never will it touch our lips. We drink the cup of perpetual celebration because of the new covenant. Should breed humility. The Christian among all should be humble because of the sovereignty of God. The non-Christian should be terrified, but now they know why. Now it's declarative. Now it's known publicly, and they know their end. And if they perceive their end, they should flee to the Savior, who alone is grace and mercy and joy and peace and life everlasting. And so in light of God's sovereignty, the psalmist closes with an individual vow of praise. Look at verse 9. But as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And then God speaks last in verse 10. But all the horns of the wicked I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. The sovereignty of God should cause us to be humble. As to the wicked, it will produce humility when he takes their horn away. May all of us rejoice who know the Son of God that what we deserved fell upon him. He has given us the key to life, life without end. He is the initiator, the cause. He makes it happen. There should never be a time in life in which we do not humble ourselves before that sovereign power and praise him. And knowing in full well that in this life, in the civil realms of our culture and civilization, we might be humble. But we know the end, do we not? that God in his time will exalt all of the sons and daughters of God because of Christ.